From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. It's 2 p.m. on July 30th, 1975. Legendary labor boss Jimmy Hoffa, his hair slicked back, shows up at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant outside Detroit, right on time as usual, for a crucial meeting with mob bosses he hopes will pave the way for him to regain control of the Teamsters Union. Before it all fell apart, Hoffa and his friends in the mob played a big role in the development of Las Vegas through their control over the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund and the millions of dollars in loans it extended to casinos. Under Hoffa, the pension fund was the mob's bank, and the Teamsters became the most powerful union in the country. The charismatic Hoffa, with all of his swagger, had lost control of the Teamsters after he was sent to prison in 1967 because of pension fund fraud and jury tampering convictions. He won an early release in 1971 with a pardon from President Richard Nixon on the condition that he would be barred from participating in organized labor activities for several more years. In this audio, provided by WDIV-TV in Detroit, Hoffa blamed his hand-picked successor, Frank Fitzsimmons, for that ban. They took Fitzsimmons up to the mountain and showed him the valley, and he bought the valley, and he forgot his friends. And then he double-crossed me. It's very simple. Strong-willed and fearless, Hoffa didn't pay much attention to that part of the deal. He was determined to get back his union and once more reap the benefits of the power of the Teamsters in Las Vegas and across the country. The Red Fox, an upscale hangout for the social elite, sat in front of a strip mall along one of the suburban area's busiest roads. It was known for its fine dining and dimly lit booths. Hoffa was its most famous patron. Detroit Mafia street boss Anthony Giacalone had persuaded Hoffa to show up for the meeting at the Red Fox with New Jersey Teamsters leader Anthony Provenzano, who had doubled as a ranking member of New York's Genovese crime family. Hoffa and Provenzano had been locked in a bitter feud since their days in prison together. If Hoffa gained the mobster's support now, his future with the union would be much brighter. Detroit journalist and mob watcher Scott Bernstein describes how Hoffa thought it was going to play out. Jackaloni and his brother Billy took a series of meetings with Jimmy Hoffa over those first couple weeks of July and told him that they had arranged for Tony Provenzano to come to the table to negotiate and make amends. And according to what the Jackalonis were telling Hoffa, Provenzano would support him in the 76 election if they met and Hoffa apologized and they would shake hands and uh, recommence their friendship. In fact, it was all a ruse. The meeting didn't happen. After waiting about 30 minutes in the restaurant's parking lot, an angry Hoffa stormed away. He found a phone booth outside a nearby hardware store and called his wife, Josephine, to say he had been stood up. He told her he would go to the grocery store on the way home and pick up some steaks for dinner. Hoffa never made it home after that phone call. Witnesses saw him in the parking lot talking to three unknown men in a 1974 Mercury Marquis belonging to Giacalone's son. 
Hoffa jumped into the back seat of the car and was never seen again. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal. In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. It just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. Well, I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. And the battle to control the strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. One night, years ago, at a social gathering of politicians and courthouse movers and shakers at the old Sands Hotel, I was sucker punched by a mob associate, unhappy about how he was portrayed in one of my stories. A couple of hours later, with four stitches under my lip, I had a war story to tell. The wise guy didn't like seeing in print that he was collecting campaign money for the sheriff and juice money for the mob at the same time, while on the public payroll as a justice court warrant officer. What I learned was that writing something bad about the mob can get you nicked up. What's worse is being in bed with the mob and crossing it, like Jimmy Hoffa. That can cost you your life. Hoffa's disappearance led to a big push against organized crime across the country, including Las Vegas, where Hoffa, the mob's banker, had pumped life into the casino industry. And today, 46 years later, just what happened to the man who helped shape the Strip's skyline remains one of this country's biggest mysteries. Stan Hunterton was a federal prosecutor in the Detroit Organized Crime Strike Force when Hoffa vanished. He vividly recalls getting the news that day. I remember July 30th, 1975, literally like it was yesterday, and I was in London on a brief vacation. Had never been out of the country before, except a little bit into Canada. And uh, I went out for a walk and I went past uh, London newsstand and there was this headline that filled the entire front page, said, Labor Leader Missing. And it never occurred to me that that was about an American or let alone, in particular, Jimmy Hoffa. When Hunterton returned to Detroit, he became involved in the early investigation into Hoffa's disappearance. Everybody in our office stopped whatever they were doing and was given some part of what became known as the Hoffax case in FBI jargon. Success did not come easy in the Hoffa investigation. 
Honiton left Detroit a couple of years later to become a prosecutor in the Las Vegas Strike Force, where he played a pivotal role in driving the mob from the Strip. Over the years, Hunterton has followed developments in the Hoffa case, as various mob associates stepped forward to claim they knew who killed the labor icon. Those theories were abundant, as were the much-anticipated public digs in search of Hoffa's body in Michigan and across the country, including the most famous one, underneath the old Giants Stadium in New Jersey. But the FBI never charged anyone in Hoffa's murder, and it never found his body. Yet, to this day, there's still hope. One respected journalist is working hard on a new lead that could turn up Hoffa's remains. More on that later. Jeff Schumacher of the Mob Museum is just as intrigued about Hoffa's disappearance as anyone. There really does seem to be a national obsession with what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. You know, people love a mystery. One thing we forget, you know, at this time in the 21st century is how well known Jimmy Hoffa was at the time that he disappeared. He was a national figure. He was a major player in uh, labor politics, in all politics, uh, and in Las Vegas for 20 years. He was a household name. Everybody knew who he was. And so when he disappeared and the mystery ensued in 1975, the world was absolutely gripped by it. The fact that we couldn't solve it, that there's so many questions that went unanswered, I think is what has allowed this story to linger, that people are still interested all these years later. We just want answers to basic questions. How was he killed? Where was he killed? Who killed him and what happened to his body? We'll be back after a break. From the day he was elected international president of the Teamsters Union in 1957, Jimmy Hoffa was regarded as one of the nation's most recognizable labor leaders. His high-profile battle with U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who was determined to crush organized crime across the country, earned him even more notoriety. A key front in that fight was Las Vegas, where the central state's pension fund had bankrolled a long line of casinos on the Strip. Among them, the Desert Inn, Caesar's Palace, Dunes, Circus Circus, Stardust, and Aladdin. Greetings, noble citizens. I, Caesar, welcome you all to Caesar's Palace. When Caesar's Palace opened its doors in August 1966, wrapped in the grandeur of the Roman Empire, it became the biggest destination on the Strip and Hoffa's crowning achievement in Las Vegas. Hoffa was the guest of honor at the lavish grand opening and Nevada's governor, as the story goes, told attendees that the resort would not have been built without Hoffa. Even on opening night, Hoffa had an incredible influence at Caesars, according to Michael Green, a University of Nevada, Las Vegas history professor. Caesars was taking a bath in the casino. They were really losing the first night. And the story is that he had gone up to bed and ran up and got Hoffa up and said, we need more money. And Hoffa said, fine, you can have another million or whatever it was that they needed to get through it. Jeff Schumacher says Hoffa was in all his glory. Everybody seemed to love Uncle Jimmy, and he was taken care of in the hotels. He was in all of the elite circles in the city. 
and he could make or break just about anybody in town. So he was very powerful. But Hoffa needed the mob to hold onto his power. This is author and investigative reporter Dan Moldea, the dean of those who have covered Hoffa's disappearance. Hoffa always thought that, or he always claimed that he would deal with the mafia at arm's distance. In my opinion, they owned him completely. Lock, Sock, and Barrel owned him. And the people under your jurisdiction, you've got people in Detroit, at least 15 who have police records. And he ran into a buzzsaw, Robert Kennedy, then the chief counsel for what became known as the U.S. Senate Rackets Committee, chaired by Senator John McClellan of Arkansas. The committee was formed to investigate corruption within the labor movement, and the Teamsters Union was at the top of its hit list. The Rackets Committee had exposed the corrupt practices of Hoffa's predecessor, Dave Beck, forcing him to resign. Next up was Hoffa. He also was accused of misusing Teamster money for his own personal benefit and power grabs within the union. And he sparred with Kennedy at public hearings, often feigning a loss of memory about his hard-nosed union activities. The two men hated each other. Over one three-day stretch of questioning, Hoffa claimed his memory had failed him 111 times. At one point, according to a series published by the Mob Museum, a frustrated Kennedy told Hoffa, quote, it's beyond comprehension that you can't remember this. You've had the worst case of amnesia the last two days I've ever heard of. And I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. Well, I don't go for that kind of action. Well, then you could have uh, arranged that, not going for that kind of action, by disassociating yourself many years ago from Joe Costello. Why? You could have done it from John Vitale. Every place you go, we've checked your telephone numbers. You're calling every gangster in the United States. Mr. Kennedy, what has happened you maybe have, in the past have, life of people today may be different. You've got Lieutenant Shoulder's son working for the Teamsters Union. They may be nice people today. You don't, you don't give them a chance to prove they're nice. By the time the committee completed its work, Hoffa had become an international celebrity. But Kennedy wasn't finished. After his brother John Kennedy became president in 1961, Bobby was appointed attorney general and continued the onslaught against Hoffa and the mob. He created a special labor rackets unit that insiders dubbed the Get Hoffa Squad. Detroit crime reporter Scott Bernstein says Kennedy had only one goal. Bobby Kennedy's sole focus in life throughout much of the early 1960s was to dismantle organized crime in America. And he targeted Hoffa as one of the ways to do that. And removing Hoffa from power in the Teamsters Union was taking away a, a great weapon in the arsenal of organized crime. And eventually he did. Kennedy's anti-mob campaign ended in 1964 when he stepped down as attorney general several months after his brother was assassinated in Dallas. The story floating around is that Hoffa was at a Miami restaurant when he heard the news that President Kennedy had been murdered. He stood up on a chair and cheered. Then he phoned his lawyer and said, quote, Have you heard the good news? They killed the son of a bitch. This means Bobby is out as attorney general. Hoffa's disdain for Bobby Kennedy led to the theory that Hoffa and his mafia sponsors had conspired to kill President Kennedy. Before Bobby left office, Hoffa was convicted of jury tampering in a kickback case in Tennessee. And months later, he was convicted again this time of defrauding the Teamsters Pension Fund in Chicago. Through it all, Hoffa remained a beloved union leader among the rank-and-file Teamsters, Bernstein says. 
He was the face of the working man in America from the 1950s until his death in 1975. He could shut down the entire country with a single phone call, um, just stop all trucks from, from moving goods and, and merchandise. In this audio, provided by WDIV-TV in Detroit, Hoffa described the lengths he would go to protect his union. That every strike we have uh, with employers who really want to fight, they revert to hiring hoodlums. And unless we know who our enemy is, unless we're in a position to do something about it, you'll lose your strike. But it all came crashing down when Hoffa went to prison in 1967. So Hoffa turned things over to his vice president, Frank Fitzsimmons, who was a brooding, large-sized, not very bright <laughs> Detroit teamster who had been Hoffa's lackey and kind of stooge. And Hoffa believed that he could put Fitzsimmons into place as the president on a temporary basis and then take the union back when he got out of prison. But the mob had different plans. Uh, Fitzsimmons got really comfortable really quickly and uh, had no desire to give back the Teamsters presidency. The mob that was in control of Fitzsimmons also began to realize that life without Jimmy Hoffa as president of the Teamsters wasn't that bad. Fitzsimmons was someone that uh, was very malleable and easy to bend to the will of his mob superiors was someone that required less maintenance and uh, frankly, less kickback money to keep him happy. So when Hoffa came out of prison in 1971, he was intent on taking back what he thought was rightly his, meaning the, the Teamsters Union presidency, and he wasn't welcome back. And he was told to pretty much shut up and retire and enjoy your freedom. And uh, they put him out to pasture. So what did Hoffa do? Well, he didn't retire. Dan Maldea says he kept pressing ahead with his plan to take back the union, and he decided to get even with his former mafia associates. He was closed out institutionally from coming back to the union, and so what Hoffa did was he started, he started informing. He started cooperating with government panels. He started cooperating with federal grand juries. He was talking to reporters, and he thought that he had been double-crossed by the mob guys who he had helped make very wealthy and very powerful. Hoffa was furious, Bernstein says. He wasn't going to give it up without a fight. And he pretty much told the mafia that he was declaring war on them. And these aren't people that take very kindly to being threatened. And Hoffa started going on a media tour, going on 60 Minutes, going on Mike Douglas, doing interviews with the New York Times, the Detroit Free Press, Playboy Magazine, and threatening to not just take back the Teamsters Union, but telling people that once he took it back, he was going to cleanse the Teamsters of organized crime influence. By that time, everyone knew Hoffa had the dirt on how the crime families used the Teamsters Pension Fund to bankroll its Las Vegas casino ventures. Former prosecutor Stan Hunterton says Hoffa's bizarre campaign likely sealed his fate. Of course, people in the mafia in Detroit and elsewhere didn't want Jimmy Hoffa going on a crusade talking about their business and especially the pension fund loans. So I think the most likely thing is that a joint decision was made by a number of members of the mafia for business and some personal reasons that 
that Hoffa had to go. Still ahead, theories about Hoffa's disappearance from the Red Fox restaurant in the Detroit area continue to thrive. And an Oscar-nominated movie added a new twist to the mystery in 2019. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Season 2, continues after a word from our sponsors. The nation today is just as hungry to uncover the truth about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance as it was 46 years ago. In 2019, it was the subject of Martin Scorsese's film The Irishman, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa. Not everyone shares the movie's theory about Hoffa's demise. That's coming up. So why are we obsessed with what happened to Hoffa? The Mob Museum's Jeff Schumacher has an idea. In most murder cases, somebody speaks up. Ultimately, you get an informant or somebody on the inside who decides to uh, spill the beans about what really happened. In the Jimmy Hoffa case, amazingly, after all these years, we still don't have the smoking gun. The prevailing theory among the experts is that Salvatore Sally Bugs Bragulio, a Genovese crime family soldier, carried out the hit under orders from Anthony Provenzano, Hoffa's archenemy. So Sally Bugs could have been in that Mercury Marquis that drove away with Hoffa from the Red Fox restaurant on the afternoon of July 30th, 1975. Hoffa was probably strangled or shot to death at a nearby house or farm that had some tie-in to the mob and then his body was disposed of. Bragulio, who was on the FBI's list of suspects in Hoffa's murder, was killed gangland-style three years after Hoffa's death, as he reportedly was cooperating with prosecutors against Provenzano. This is not the only theory about Hoffa's killer, according to Schumacher. But then there's the story of Frank Sheeran. Frank Sheeran was a friend of Hoffa, and he was a labor racketeer himself. Late in his life, he sort of spilled the beans about his life to a lawyer named Charles Brandt. And during those conversations, Sheeran told Brandt that he had personally killed Jimmy Hoffa. Now, this late in life confession resulted in a best-selling book called I Heard You Paint Houses. And it was a sensation, it was, it was a bestseller. And people, many people bought into this simply on the basis that Sheeran said he did it. The Irishman was based on Sheeran's story. Sheeran was played by De Niro. Like many people, I loved the movie. As Schumacher and others point out, Scorsese's account, though dramatic and enticing, may not be totally accurate. It's a finely made movie. I mean, Scorsese's a really great director. He has the best actors, great script. As movie making, it's top notch. As history, it's not so much. And the problem there is it's really a one-source story. Frank Sheeran, his final years, claimed that he himself killed Jimmy Hoffa. But the records don't support that. The other sources don't support that. The federal investigations do not support that claim. And there are problems that even Sheeran couldn't clear up in terms of the timeline and where he was at certain times. Scott Bernstein also doesn't believe Sharon murdered Hoffa. Frank Sharon was frankly a nobody and was someone that would never be trusted with pulling off the hit of the century. He's someone that I can't honestly tie to any murders. 
I've talked to a number of FBI agents that say that they can't connect him to one homicide, let alone multiple homicides, let alone the Jimmy Hoffa assassination. Dan Moldea, who has spent a lifetime tracking leads in the case, believes Provenzano had Hoffa's body returned to his home turf in the steel drum as a trophy. Moldea doesn't subscribe to the shearing theory. In the past couple of years, Moldea has developed what he thinks is solid information that will show Hoffa's body was transported by a Detroit trucking company to a landfill called Brother Moscato's Dump near the Hackensack River in Jersey City, New Jersey. Moldea is pushing authorities to do yet another Hoffa dig. Nothing I've ever experienced has been this good, though. Nothing. Nothing even in the same universe as this particularly, which is why I'm in high confidence on this, too. I've bet the ranch on this thing. But former federal prosecutor Stan Hunterton doesn't buy into the steel drum theory. I, I've just become convinced over the years and more so as the FBI continues to dig more holes, which I think are now over a dozen in an attempt to find the body, that it just wouldn't make sense to be shipping Jimmy Hoffa's body around the country or putting it in a grave on a farm. I mean, who wants to be caught making an illegal left-hand turn with Jimmy Hoffa's body in their trunk? So, for my part, and it's no better and maybe worse than other people's conclusion, I think he was cremated shortly after he was killed. Scott Bernstein agrees. I don't subscribe to the belief that they would have taken a body and shipped it cross-country. Just, it seems way too convoluted and complex when you have a, a million ways to get rid of the body here in Detroit and people that are very well-equipped and, and well-versed in how to conduct murder. Bernstein believes Hoffa was taken to a nearby house, secured by the mob, and killed. Then, his body was put in the trunk of the Mercury Marquis and driven to a local trash company and incinerated. Yet, Bernstein is rooting for Moldea. I, I have the utmost respect for Dan and someone that I consider the godfather of, of Jimmy Hoffa research. And if Dan believes that he's there, I, I gotta give it some credence. And I am eager to see what happens. And if they do a dig there, I, I would love them to find him and have Dan be Captain Ahab and uh, the Hoffa body be his white whale. Hoffa is gone, but his strip legacy remains. It is the foundation for today's Las Vegas, the world's number one destination. A thriving tourism corridor lined by mega resort after mega resort, offering high-tech gambling and a lot more. Gourmet dining, high fashion shopping, and exotic nightclubbing. The new boardrooms of the strip are no longer run by the mob, but by Wall Street corporations. Coming up in Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, the Aladdin Hotel comes back into the picture. State gaming regulators bar the mob-connected Aladdin owners from the resort and make the historic decision to close the hotel's casino. But federal judge Harry Claiborne has his own plan for the embattled property. Bud Hicks was the state's top deputy attorney general. I think uh, what Harry Claiborne did shocked everybody. It, it was really beyond the pale. 
Then, a nasty internal war erupts at the federal courthouse as prosecutors look to tighten the noose around the mob. High-profile defense lawyer David Chesnoff was just starting his career in Las Vegas back then. He'll tell you what it was like defending mob figures and going up against the massive resources of a federal government determined to change the ways of Las Vegas. It got very personal. And for the lawyers, to be honest with you, at times it was scary because you were dealing with people with a lot of power and uh, all we had was our, our pencils and our books. This has been part two of Mobbed Up, a production for the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. This is season two. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman. Field and studio recording by Larry Meir and audio engineering by Greg Conway. We'd like to thank WDIV-TV in Detroit for excerpts of Jimmy Hoffa interviews used in their documentary, Jimmy Hoffa, A Closer Look at the Labor Leader's Life, Work, and Disappearance. You can find the documentary on YouTube. If you have questions or feedback, send me an email, jgerman at reviewjournal.com. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.